Good morning, friends. My name is Pastor Kayla, and I'm so glad I get to spend this morning with you, even though I'm stuck here at my house. Quick note on that. I feel fine. No symptoms at all, but we are trying to function out of an abundance of caution. I would hate to get Pastor Larry or the band sick. So I still wanted to share this message with you, though, because God has been doing a work in me this week as I've been studying for it. And I expect him to do the same in your life as well. See, at the beginning of this year, we started a series called You're Not the Boss of Me. And it's all about how we can say no to the emotions that compete for control over our lives. We talk about all of this and we're spending so many weeks talking about all of the different emotions because we all have them and they all try and get control of our lives. In my life personally, it seems to pop up most. They try and get most control over both my mood and my mouth. I'm not sure about any of you, but that's how it manifests in my life. Well, today I want to talk to you about the emotion of fear. Fear is actually something the Bible has a lot to say about. In fact, this last fall, we spent an entire series talking about how we can hand our anxiety over to God. It was called Anxious for Nothing. And if this is something that is a particular struggle for you, you might want to go back on our YouTube channel and take a listen to those weeks. It's called Anxious for Nothing. Friends, nobody wants fear or worry to be the boss in their life. And some of you, though, have already started to check out because fear is just not something that you deal with. In fact, some of your closest family and friends probably wish that you would have a little bit of fear because maybe that would help out. You're the ones that are like jumping out of the plane of life. You run and you don't look first and you're just not worried about it at all. And then there are others of you and yes, I know you're out there because I have to keep my eye out for you at all times. There are some of you that like to give fear as a gift, like, you know, you're the ones that like to scare other people. Have you experienced this, any of you? I actually hired one of these people, and she's awful. I had no idea that she was like this until after I hired her. But just just take a look at what I have to work with. Quick note, this is pre-COVID times. No! <laughs> Okay, as you can see, this is actually the work of the devil. Our relationship is still recovering, but regardless, friends, nobody, nobody wants fear or worry or anxiety to be the boss. There might be a few of you listen that don't deal with it, but most of us, there is some bit of fear and worry and anxiety that creeps into our lives and it can happen daily. Fear, when it's in that seat on the bus, it can rob us of opportunities. It can mess up our relationships. I mean, it can even interfere with our sleep. It's working really hard to be the boss, but, but here's the interesting part about fear. It's actually a byproduct of something good. Fear is the byproduct of our ability to accumulate knowledge and project into the future. And friends, that ability is a gift. 
This ability to gather up knowledge and project into the future is the same ability we have to imagine and dream and hope. I would hate to give up those moments of like, I can't wait. But see, the flip side of the I can't wait moments are the what if moments. You see, our ability to dream about the future is also our ability to worry about the future. Now, just like we said in the fall, if there is a time and place for fear, it can keep us from doing dumb and dangerous things. But we just don't want fear to be the boss. We don't want it driving our lives because it can distract us. And frankly, it causes us all to become a little bit self-absorbed because we're trying to self-preserve. Jesus actually says quite a bit about fear. And here's the bottom line that Jesus teaches. It's pretty simple. Fear not. Yeah, that's it. Just stop it. Quit being afraid. Now, if you look at that in isolation, that lesson from Jesus, it sounds naive. Just quit it. I'm not sure that's going to work. And that's one of the problems we have with how we treat the Bible sometimes. We just kind of drop in on these moments in Jesus' life and we pick out a verse without context. But here's the thing about Jesus and this teaching on fear. He spent a lot of time over the course of his entire ministry, and especially with his 12 apostles, teaching them about how not to be afraid. This isn't just one story. It's a recurring theme of Jesus' teaching. It's also one of those things that's so easy to say, but virtually impossible to do. So we're going to jump around a little bit today, mostly in Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. It's one of the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life. But I don't just want to tell you one story of Jesus' teaching on fear. I want you to see the whole story and maybe even the why and some of the how. So in Matthew 10, Jesus had just finished picking the disciples. Now, to explain that, there was usually a big crowd wherever Jesus went. They'd find out he was nearby and a crowd would form. Now, there was a smaller group in the crowd called disciples, and they followed Jesus wherever he went, kind of like, I don't know, groupies. But inside that group, there was an even smaller group of 12 people called apostles. Now, these are the ones that Jesus handpicked specifically to teach and then send out. He gets those 12 guys together and he's trying to prepare them for what it's going to be like. He says, you'll be arrested and beaten. And he goes on. He says, you're going to be flogged and hated. He actually goes on for quite a while about how bad it's going to be for them. He even gives them a word picture to describe what he's doing. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Hey, thanks for signing up, guys. Here's the terms of the contract you just signed. It's bloody carnage for you. And then he says these words, fear not. Now, the crazy part is that Jesus had already started seeding this idea in their minds well before now. A couple chapters earlier in Matthew 8, Jesus had taken them on a field trip. See, everything Jesus does is intentional. So when you look at this familiar story with that perspective, it starts to make even more sense. 
Matthew 8, starting in verse 23, says, Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Quick note, I love that simplicity. Jesus gets into the boat, and the disciples followed him. Period. Then it says, Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake. Suddenly. Now, this actually does happen a lot on this lake, in this part of the world. Storms would just whip up out of nowhere. So, These guys were actually pretty accustomed to that, but this was something altogether different. This wasn't just some wind or a storm. Matthew makes a point to say that it was a furious storm. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. Okay, I'm sorry, really? See, you gotta picture this in reality. You can't just calmly read this like it's nothing. This is when I wish the Bible was in Technicolor so we could really get the whole gist here. First, this storm is awful. There is rain, there is wind, this is not a big boat. Everybody on it is soaked and a complete mess. Think hair matted down, freezing and yelling, trying to keep the boat from capsizing. These guys are in a panic and Jesus is sleeping. Honestly, how is it even possible? Like from a physical standpoint, Jesus has got to be soaking wet. It's loud. There are people screaming because of the wind and no one is having a calm conversation. But Matthew describes that scene and then says Jesus is sleeping. Sometimes I wonder if he wasn't just faking it. But It says, the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now hear me. This was not the gentle nudge of a morning, like a sweet mom morning. No, they went straight to the, you're going to miss the bus or like fire, like the total mom yell. They were worried they were going to die. And then Jesus I love it because it doesn't even say that he gets up from where he's sleeping. Just imagine him kind of like propping himself up a little bit. And Jesus replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why are we so afraid? This has to be one of the stupidest questions. Why are we afraid? Because we're literally about to die. There is water in the boat that... This isn't going to end well. When you're about to die, Jesus, you're afraid. That's why we're afraid. But he didn't even give them time to respond. And this is the best part. See, see, this is where we realize this story is not about Jesus having power over nature. Although it's true. This is a lesson on fear. And we can know that because of Jesus' question. Why are you afraid? So, Now Jesus gets up, no panic, all calm. And by the way, isn't isn't that good news? That no matter what's going on around us, our God does not panic. He is always the cool head in the room, every time. It says, then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Then they asked the question we all have to ask at one time in our lives says, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Ah, did you hear it? What kind of man is this? 
Now see, when Mark tells this story, his version in the literal translation says that instead of they were amazed, it says they feared a great fear. That's the literal translation. He actually uses that same word twice in the sentence. So it's like he's trying to communicate that the second fear they experienced was bigger than the first one. Their fear of what just happened in the storm, the fear, the respect of who they were standing with in the boat was even bigger than that fear. So for just a moment, their amazement, their confidence and respect in Jesus was bigger than the fear they had of their situation. And that was the purpose of this field trip. And it's a good lesson for us too. You don't have to allow fear to overwhelm you. You don't have to let fear be the boss because Jesus is more overwhelming, more powerful. He's more powerful than whatever fear you've got. So these apostles, they get it for just a minute. And then a couple days later, Jesus is talking to them. And again, he says, don't be afraid. But this time he's more specific. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 28. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. See, Jesus is pointing out, even in the ancient world, that there is more to us than just what can be seen. You are more than just a body. You have a soul. That was a big deal then, and it's a big deal now. He's saying, don't be afraid of those people or of the things, of the storms, right? That can kill your body. He was reminding them of that storm thing from a couple days ago. Remember that field trip? Yeah, just your body was in trouble then. And then he goes on, rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he gives an example from nature something that they can understand outside of themselves. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Then he takes it back to them. Even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. He's saying, Don't you know that you're so valuable to God? He's got an eye on every detail of your life, even on the hairs of your head. You don't have to be afraid because God knows you and he cares about you. Even when the world is crashing down around you, God knows and he cares and he is bigger than all of it. So surely these apostles have to be starting to get it. But Jesus signs them up for another field trip. This one is another story you might know already. It's just a couple pages over in Matthew 14. Jesus has been preaching all day to a big crowd and he went a little long. And now there's thousands of people who have no food and it is well past dinner time. So the the disciples, they tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, these people have got to go home and eat. You went kind of long. And now they're going to starve. And Jesus looks at his 12 guys and says, okay, you feed them. And they're like, wait, wait, which one of us totally dropped the ball on the catering? Jesus, we don't have any food for these people. And then there's the part where the little boy gives up his lunch of five loaves of bread and two fish, which can we just say the only one who came prepared was a little kid? I think that'll preach. 
So Jesus prays over this little lunchbox and hands the pieces to the 12 apostles and they pass out the food and everybody gets enough and there's a lot left over. See, the apostles' confidence at this point is at an all-time high. Jesus invited them to be a part of a miracle. These guys are in good shape and they could not possibly be afraid of anything. But look at verse 22. Immediately, immediately, as if Jesus knew it was time for a pop quiz to be sure the lesson took. It says, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. I love that. Jesus made them. The Greek word for made actually means that he forced them into the boat. Why do you think he had to force them? Well, I mean, they were probably thinking, yeah. We're not getting into the boat with you anymore. So Jesus makes them get in and then he pushes them off of the beach and then he goes and dismisses the crowd. Hours later, they're struggling a little bit, rowing against the wind. And it says in verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. These guys had been rowing for hours against the wind. And just before dawn, Jesus takes the shortcut, like directly across the lake. He walks on the water toward the boat. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. I mean, I don't blame them, but they totally freak out again. They just were a part of a miracle a few hours ago, but now they're in a panic. He goes on, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. You got to wonder if he wasn't like, how many field trips and sermons and examples do you guys need? You don't have to be afraid as long as I am here. Fear doesn't get to be the boss when I'm around. So then Peter even tests out this newfound courage and he goes out on the lake with Jesus. But he lets fear get a hold of him and he starts to sink. Jesus catches him and goes over the lesson one more time. When I am here, guys, I win every time. Don't be afraid. But they did. These guys feared right up to the very end. The lesson just did not stick. See, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He heals countless people in front of their eyes, all of it leading up to his ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And they're starting to really believe that he's the Messiah. He's the one that they've been waiting for to come and save them from the oppression they're living under, the Roman rule. They thought he was about to declare himself king and overthrow the whole thing. They sit down, they have their last meal together, and then that night, at the height of their confidence, Jesus was arrested. The disciples panicked. They hid, they lied, they denied. They watched Jesus be crucified. And when they knew he was dead, fear won. They thought, what kind of man was that? See, We thought it was the Messiah. 
They believed, they experienced all of it. But, but Rome, Rome couldn't have killed the Messiah. So, so they thought we must have been wrong or tricked. We either misunderstood what he was saying or he lied. But then, then the women came back from the garden three days later talking crazy, saying that Jesus had risen. So those apostles, they go. They go and they get to peek into an empty tomb. And then later, later they meet their resurrected friend. This time though, this time it clicked. See, that's the power of the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the grave, everything he said about himself got an exclamation point. Things that didn't make sense before, now they made perfect sense, especially what Jesus taught about fear. You see, for you and me, the resurrection is Easter. But for those first century believers, the resurrection was everything. It was their source of strength and boldness and courage. It proved that Jesus was really who he said he was. Jesus could be trusted. The world is still a scary place, but they no longer needed to be afraid. They feared not. And they feared not, and they came out of hiding. This is amazing. We, we can't even imagine this. We, we can't imagine because there's no parallel in our lives. They willingly faced down the very men that Jesus had that arrested Jesus, the ones that had beaten and crucified him. And then they went on to change the world because fear not changes the world. This was a generation of men and women, the very first Christians, that lost their fear of death. And when someone has lost their fear of death, it is very difficult to threaten them. Late in the second century, Roman medical writer Claudius Galenus he examined the bodies of Christians as they died from their injuries in the Roman arena under Marcus Aurelius's persecution. Here's what he said about those Christians that were killed. For fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. So what changed for these guys? The resurrection. See, when you worship someone who has mastered life and then conquered death, when you know that that God, he sees you and he cares for you, when that guy raises from the dead, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Now, don't get me wrong. Fear is always lurking. It is a part of our human experience. There are lots of tricks and tips to cope with fear, but get this, Peter, the guy who failed the boat ride, panicked during Jesus' arrest, denied that he even knew Jesus while he was on trial, and then hid out in a locked room after Jesus' death. Years after the resurrection, Peter wrote to a group of people like us, the people who didn't get to see all that Jesus did, but they still chose to believe. And he says this in 1 Peter 5, cast all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Cast your cares on Jesus. This literally means to transfer all your worry to him. And Peter should know. He faced things we can't imagine. In fact, he was later executed in Nero's Rome. 
but he was confident that the promise Jesus extended to him was available to us. He's telling us we can say with confidence, fear, you are not the boss of me. I already have a boss. And he conquered life and death. He is who he claimed to be. He is worthy of my worship and all my trust. The life of Jesus is an invitation. His death and resurrection are a promise. You can follow him and fear not because he is with you. And that is enough. Friends, as you walk through this week, I want you to think about these questions. There's just three of them. First, think and ask yourself, on a scale of 1 to 10, how fearful are you? And you can do it by, you know, specific instance or just a fear that just kind of sticks around. Scale of 1 to 10, how fearful are you? And then second, what is your go-to coping mechanism? What is it that you do when you feel afraid? Is it, you know, crawling under the covers? Is it watching TV? Is it, I don't know, whatever it is. What is your go-to coping mechanism right now? And then third, what would it look like or sound like for you to take Peter's advice and cast all your cares on Jesus? What would it look like to get rid of whatever that coping mechanism is right now and trade it out for casting all of your cares on Jesus. He's the one that's trustworthy. He's the one that we can trust to hold on to those, to dispel all the fears because he mastered life and he defeated death. Because of the resurrection, we don't have to allow fear to be the boss of us anymore. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for being bigger than all of our fears. Thank you for sending Jesus to live a perfect life and then to conquer death for us. God, thank you for being trustworthy. Thank you for being being enough, being powerful, being good, for seeing us, for seeing what's going on in our life, for knowing all of the details, for never being surprised, and for caring for us the whole time. God, we love you and we trust you. We know that you are good and loving and powerful. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.